0: Good morning, welcome to Stonebrook. Why don't you go ahead and find a seat, if you would, please, and also find a Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We have Bibles in the chairs near you. If you don't have one with you this morning, that's fine. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you. Um, Perhaps you've got it on your device, that's good. I mean, Paul called the Scriptures the scrolls you know, in the New Testament. So if you want to scroll, I suppose that's all right. Just turn off, just put it in airplane mode so people can't, you know, message you. That's all right. Hebrews chapter four is where we'll be today. Two weeks ago, an event happened on Sunday. It was a really big sports game. Some of you may remember. And during said really big sports game, a Christian organization aired two commercials with the tagline, He Gets Us. And they were attempting to convey a message that Jesus understands you. He understands everyone. He knows where you're coming from. And he has a message for everyone. This is the second year in a row that this organization aired Uh, Commercials during the Super Bowl, and um, these this year over the last two weeks they've already racked up close to a million views each on YouTube. The commercials cost about 17.5 million dollars that's 17.50 per YouTube play. Um, That's not a great rate, so hopefully, they keep getting views for that investment. But this commercial, these commercials, they generated quite a bit of controversy this year. I don't remember it being so heated last year. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the difference was. Maybe I wasn't paying as close of attention last year. But uh, those that are coming from a liberal perspective, they criticized the commercials primarily for the organization's link with, uh, with, with other organizations that uh, shock, hold to traditional, historic, biblical uh, views on marriage and sexuality, and that apparently is the worst thing possible. And I suppose, too, if you find it surprising that an organization who's willing to invest millions of dollars to talk about Jesus during the Super Bowl has links to historically rooted understandings, like maybe the problem is not the organization. And on the other side, conservatives and Christians, and I'll separate those two groups out for a second, there's some overlap, sometimes you can be a conservative and a Christian, but the, the chatter that I heard uh, on, on Christian websites was primarily also complaining about the He Gets Us commercials. That they didn't preach the full gospel message. Um, a lot of the criticism was, was that they didn't go far enough in the message. There are even some, and I, I don't know that the Christians are complaining about this much. I hope that they're not. Um, But a lot of the conservative organizations that are complaining about this are complaining about the implication that maybe Jesus actually does care about everybody. Shock and awe. So I think there's misunderstandings from both sides. I haven't heard a whole lot of good, uh, a whole lot of good, like, hey, that was actually pretty neat, at least not in the media. Um, It's a lot easier to get clicks when you're mad at something. So um, articles, articles that are written like, hey, that was pretty okay. Like nobody clicks on those and you don't sell any advertising. So everybody has to write how angry they are about it. So my own thoughts in the commercial, they're a little complicated. If you're interested in what I think, it's mostly good. Um, I think my, the summary of my thoughts are that it is very, very difficult in a 30-second commercial to attempt the nuance that Jesus actually does care very deeply about every single human being and also doesn't agree with everything you think that's hard to get across in our world these days and that's actually true for all of us my point today is not the controversy of the super bowl Um, i just wanted to point out that um, this generated a lot of conversation this idea that jesus gets us and i kind of want to ask the question for the morning is this idea that Jesus gets us a biblical idea I didn't create the sermon because of the Super Bowl I created this sermon because the point of today's passage is that Jesus gets us and I'm like oh hey cool I could talk about the Super Bowl ad <laughs> where does this idea come from that Jesus gets it gets us well it is a biblical idea, and it comes from our passage today. So just a, a quick reminder while you turn to Hebrews chapter 4 of where we have been so far. This spring, uh, we are going through the book of Hebrews. We're uh, on part 6 uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the series through the book of Hebrews. And so far, what we've seen the author of Hebrews doing is that he begins the book by saying that when the Jews were under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament... God would deliver messages through his prophets and especially through the prophet Moses and sometimes angelic messengers. And so far where we've been is that Jesus is more important than the angelic messengers and Jesus is a more important prophet than even Moses was. God would deliver in the Old Testament messages, especially through Moses. Through Moses, God gave Israel the whole covenant deal in the the first place. He set up this nation of Israel by rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. And he set up his laws and his promises and his covenant with the Jews. But now... The author of Hebrews says, God is speaking to us or has spoken, final period, past tense, has spoken through Jesus. In chapter 3, we heard Jesus being called the apostle and high priest of our confession. Greater than Moses. What does this mean? It means that Jesus' message, it completes it fulfills and it in, in important ways replaces Moses' message. That's what it means that Jesus is now the apostle of our confession. In other words, an apostle, an apostle is the one sent by God to bring news sent by God to bring the news about what we are to believe and tell people about. So the apostle is one who's sent by God, and our confession, that's the things we're supposed to believe and tell other people about. So when Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession, that's what we're talking about. And in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews now begins to unpack this idea of Jesus, our high priest. And he's going to take quite a few chapters to do that. He's going to be talking about Jesus' high priestly work through chapter 10. So he's going, we're going to make a start of it this morning in chapters 4 and 5. So let's read. Let's read this passage. Let's start in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest... Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he also is clothed with weakness. And because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. And no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just like Aaron was. Now, in the same way, Christ, he did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2, if you're paying attention. And also in another place it says, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. During his earthly life, that's Jesus He offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. It can be a kind of a confusing passage, so I want to try to break it down for us today. And I want to point out four things about this high priest, about Jesus' high priest that our passage shows today. And I'm very thankful, by the way, that the author of Hebrews, and maybe more specifically the English translators of the book of Hebrews, gave me four words that all start with S to explain these four things. I hope it makes it memorable. Jesus, our high priest, he is superior, to the Old Covenant priesthood. Jesus, our high priest, he is sinless. He can sympathize, and he is the source of our salvation. That's actually five S's, so that's all right. First, let's take this idea that Jesus, our high priest, is superior. For the next six chapters, chapters four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. They are going to discuss Jesus' superiority as a priest. But the author of Hebrews, he gets started on the reasons that Jesus is better than any merely human priest. And I say merely human priest because Jesus was human, but he was also God. So any priest that was only human and not also God, Jesus is better than them. The author of Hebrews starts by saying that Jesus passed through the heavens. What does this mean? Well, he's talking about Jesus ascending into heaven after his resurrection. That's what's going on here. See, in the Old Covenant, here's why this is significant. In the Old Covenant, the high priests would go into the Holy of Holies. They would present a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And the sacrificial offerings, the smoke of those offerings, it would rise like an, the aroma would rise to heaven, to God who would Hear the prayers and accept the sacrifices. But here's the thing about Jesus, the fully God and fully human priest. He himself made a sacrifice and he himself rose to heaven to be witnessed by God. That's an interesting parallel. That's why his sacrifice is better because it's not just the aroma of the sacrifice that rises. It's Jesus himself. That's why it says he he passed into the heavens. Our hope is that Jesus... The fully God and fully human priest made a sacrifice and is still standing there at the throne. God is still remembering. That once-for-all-time sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was not one that was temporary, that would need to be repeated time after time. The effect of Jesus' sacrifice lasts forever because he was the sacrifice and he is still in the throne room of God. In chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, the author of Hebrews uh mentions another reason that Jesus is superior. And he says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, I got a lot to say about that, but you're lazy. That's, it's in the Bible. It says it right here. And then he moves on and he doesn't explain it until chapter 7. So we're going to wait two weeks to explain Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Here's a quick preview. John, here's a quick preview. He's preaching about this in two weeks. What it means that he is, why why being a priest in the order of Melchizedek makes him superior is because the Levitical priesthood, the old covenant priesthood, they paid homage to Melchizedek. They deferred to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's priesthood was better. And Pastor John is going to explain that really well in two weeks. I promise you. So our high priest is superior to the old covenant priesthood. And our high priest, and another reason that he is superior... Is because our high priest is sinless. Next, we see in chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus is sinless. But we also see that he was tempted in every single way that we are. Now, think about that for just a second. Every kind of temptation that has come upon mankind, Jesus faced. Brainstorm to yourself for just a second. What kind of temptations do you face? What kind of temptations do you tend to give in to? Maybe write a few of them down, maybe not. That's up to you. What kind of temptations do you face? Now think for a second. What, uh, this is easier to do. What other kinds of temptations do you see other people facing and giving into? Jesus faced all of those kinds of temptation. We see in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, that Jesus, not only was he tempted in every way that we were, but he also suffered And he wrestled in prayer with weeping and loud cries. Jesus suffered, he was tempted, and he faced spiritual war to the point that he was crying out to God with loud weeping. But here's the thing about our great high priest, Jesus. Even though he was tempted in every way that we are, he never gave in. To those temptations and he never quit during the suffering he was sinless now we see in chapter 5 verse 3 that the merely human priests they were they had sin and so they had to offer sacrifice for themselves as well as the people But our great high priest's sacrifice was perfect because he was perfect. He didn't need to make a sacrifice to save himself. The old covenant high priests, they had to make the sacrifice to save themselves as well as the people. But Jesus did it without having to. He didn't need saving. He did it solely for his people. That's a better priest. No selfish motive. Jesus obeyed perfectly in his temptation and suffering, but we don't, do we? This idea that Jesus is without sin, I think oftentimes has the effect of making us feel really crummy. Making us feel really unworthy of Jesus, doesn't it? Makes us feel like we don't deserve to follow Christ or deserve his affection or his attention. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is exactly true. You are unworthy of Jesus' affection. You are unworthy of God's grace. But that's exactly the point. That's the gospel message, at least the first half of it. None of us on our own have the right to approach God that fear and trembling you experience at the idea of going to God and bearing your soul in prayer it's appropriate unless you know Jesus we are too sinful we are too unclean our feeble attempts at cleaning ourselves off don't work And this is the confession we're supposed to hang on to. We are unworthy. But, but our great high priest, our great sinless high priest, gladly made the sacrifice that makes us worthy. Our high priest. He is sinless, but he also gets us. He can sympathize. The fact that Jesus is sinless can tempt us to think that he is up in heaven looking down on us, shaking his head at our failure to measure up. But what does our passage say? What does the scripture say about how this sinless Jesus feels toward us? Look at chapter five, verse two. How does a merely human priest feel toward his people? It says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he is also clothed with weakness. And that is why it is so important to understand that Jesus became a man because he also took on Weakness, and faced every temptation any one of us has ever felt and suffered just like we do. He, being God, became a man. And so he can deal gently with us because he gets us. He can sympathize with us. And the point of this passage is to help us know Help us to have confidence. Help us to hold on to our confession that Jesus understands our weakness. We get a picture of this in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel writer Matthew records a time when he saw Jesus during his earthly ministry. He saw Jesus getting us. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the Gospel writer Matthew recorded when Jesus saw the crowds, what was his feeling toward them? He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. This word compassion means to suffer with, but in the Greek, it uses a root word that's the same as the pit of your stomach. He felt them in his gut. You ever feel that? Toward something, some event, oh, it just punches you right in the gut. He felt compassion for them because they were what? They were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus does not look down from heaven on your weakness. He sees it fully. He knows it and He experienced it and He has compassion on it and He calls you to trust Him in it. Yes, judgment is coming for sin. And unless you do trust that great high priest's sacrifice, you will face the judgment you are fearing for your sin. But until then, God is not in heaven. Jesus is not in heaven sneering at you and turning his back on you because of your failure to measure up. He's calling you to trust him. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your mind on him, on Jesus, the apostle and priest of our confession, the pioneer, perfecter of our faith, the source of our salvation. Our high priest is the source of our salvation. His obedience in temptation and suffering, it says here in chapter 5. And in his humanity, enduring that trial, even going all the way to the cross, is why he is able to save us. Until he did that, this scripture says, he was not able to save us. His suffering and his obedience to his Father in heaven, in his humanity, all the way to death on the cross is why he is our, able to be our high priest, why he is superior to every other high priest. He obeyed where we didn't, he obeyed in our place. He passed the test that Adam failed in the garden. The book of Genesis, it shows us that God put Adam in the garden to grow it and to guard it. But instead, Adam turned to selfishness and disobedience and let the garden be invaded by the serpent. But Jesus, Jesus came into creation. And even though he was tempted in every way that we are, in every way that Adam was. And even though he suffered just like we do, he did not give in to the temptation and he did not quit during that suffering. And that is why he was declared worthy to be our great high priest and why his sacrifice of himself on the cross was declared worthy to be the one sacrifice for all people for all time. No other sacrifices necessary and now No other sacrifice is possible. He did it because we couldn't. We wouldn't. When we sin, which you all do, which I do, when you fail to obey, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look to Jesus. And see that while judgment is coming for your sin, he stands there in the throne room in heaven, not wagging his finger at you, but extending his arm in mercy and in grace. And he says, admit it. Admit that you don't love God with all your heart. Admit that you don't obey your creator's commands. Trust that Jesus did that for you all the obedience you need to get into heaven. He did. Look to him. Hang on to him. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us to do in light of this fact that Jesus was that great high priest. In light of the fact that we have this great high priest who is superior to the old covenant priesthood, who is sinless, who can sympathize, and who is the source of your salvation, he says, hold fast to your confession. In chapter fourteen, verse, chapter four, verse 14, hold fast to your confession. I think last week, John, during a song, you explained the idea of holding fast. What is fast? It doesn't mean quickly. Uh, That's one definition of fast in the English language. But another definition is tight. Like a fastener on a box. It means that you can and should feel secure about the things you believe. You should feel secure. You can feel secure that Jesus really, really actually does forgive your sin when you trust in him. He His sacrifice really was enough to pay for all of your sin, including that one you're wondering about. He really is the great high priest. He really does get you. He really does understand you. He really does care about you. Hold tightly. Be secure in that belief, that confession and because because of that so we can also approach the throne of grace with boldness that's the second thing we're encouraged to do in light of our great high priest Jesus chapter 4 verse 16 says, approach the throne of grace with boldness because your debt is now paid and because Jesus really is there in the throne room interceding on our behalf, we can approach the throne with boldness because Jesus did everything needed for us to be able to face up to God. He invites you to come to him boldly. What does it look like to approach boldly? We get a picture of this in the Gospels. It looks like children. Here's the great thing. There was a, there was a time when Jesus was teaching to the crowds and all, all, all the people were standing around amazed at his teaching. Now, can you imagine if Jesus were in the park preaching? How would you feel going up to Jesus? What, how, like, that would be kind of like this reverent, wonderful, wild moment. Wouldn't it? You know the great thing about kids? They don't care. They are not impressed by the things adults think are important. And when Jesus was teaching, there were a bunch of small children that came up to him and his disciples tried to like, no, no, don't do that. Like we're back there in the, you know, the kids are running and we're like, stop. And, you know, in the back hallway here. But when Jesus saw that, he said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Approach God's throne like little children, like kids. In fact, Jesus says, if we don't approach like kids, and if instead we try to get ourselves all cleaned up, act all proper, and religious, and be real polite, and Midwestern nice, and defer to the next person next to us, and like, don't make a fuss, and don't try to like, put yourself forward, all those awesome Midwestern things. We won't enter the kingdom. Jesus goes on, he says, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Brothers and sisters and friends, we are supposed to be like those little children, boldly approaching the throne of grace. Your religiousness and your good behavior and your politeness and your, your decorum in church will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Only trust in Christ's priestly work and bold acceptance of it like a kid will. We approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? What are we supposed to approach the throne of grace for? Help. Approach the throne of grace for help. Verse 16, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When are you supposed to go to the throne of grace? In time of need. Do you find yourself having a hard time holding on to your faith? Do you have a hard time remembering that Jesus died for your sins, including that one? Do you have a hard time obeying Christ perfectly? Refusing temptation every time? Do you have a hard time with that? Do you have a hard time when you are suffering? Is it tempting? And does it feel like maybe you're about to quit? When are you supposed to go to the throne of grace for help? In time of need. We are to go to God's throne when we need help, not when we have it together and we're feeling strong. That's what the throne of grace is for. Approach it with boldness. Maybe some of you here have never approached God's throne before. Maybe some of you here don't know about all this Jesus stuff. The people are nice. They treat me well. Maybe the people aren't nice, but you're compelled by this Jesus guy. But have you approached his throne boldly? This verse is also an invitation to you. Approach the throne of God with boldness to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. You can approach God's throne with boldness, every single one of you in this room, whether you are a Christian or not. You will become a Christian with the kind of faith it takes to approach God's throne with boldness because the only reason you can a- approach the throne of grace with boldness is that you need to believe that jesus did everything that was needed to pay the debt for the sin that keeps separating you from god you just need to trust him and i'd invite you to do that this morning trust him all of all of us Trust him in our suffering. Trust him in our temptation. Trust him in our unbelief. Believe it. It seems so impossible, but believe it. And go to his throne for help. How do we do that? We do that in prayer. We do that together as a community. We do that by studying him and understanding him. Let's do that. Let's pray. Let's go now together to the throne. Well, Jesus, we know we don't have very far to go to get to your throne because you are here in our midst, you promise. We're gathered here in your name. You're here in our midst. You dwell on the praises of your people, the Psalms say. So Lord, uh, we actually can't escape you even if we think we are hiding. You know exactly where we are. You see us. So Lord, I pray for help, grace, and mercy. Would you strengthen our faith? Help us in our unbelief. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to keep remembering who you are and that you care and that you are present in our trouble. This week, as we run into things that we're scared of, this week, as we run into conversations or situations or suffering that we don't want to face up to, Lord, help us to remember that you faced every kind of temptation and every kind of suffering that we face. Help us to trust our great high priest's work and that your mercy is enough and your grace is enough. Even when I feel weak, maybe especially when I feel weak, then, Lord, you are strong. Help us to look to you and your strength for help not for inspiration to muster up our own strength, but help us to lean on your strength this week. In Jesus' name, amen.